Good morning. Glad to be here. I'm glad to be here this morning. I hope you are too. It's probably been about a year since I've been here to speak, so I've been looking forward to this for the past few weeks when I was asked to speak. So I'm very glad to be here with you this morning. Michael, if you can tell me what that is, I will give you $100. Nope. Well, Yancey, any ideas? No. Monty? No. No one can tell me what this is. This right here is the process that your body uh, turns food, turns what you eat, into energy. It's how you metabolize carbohydrates, fats, proteins, things like that, and you get energy. It allows you to walk around. That's one process. There are millions of different steps in this, and they're all so interconnected. And that's how God made you. God made you perfect. He made you interconnected. You can't even imagine how complicated the system is. I don't understand. I've been studying it for four or five years now. That's just one of the processes, and there's many different. The human body is just really amazing if you study it. I've been through many different anatomy courses, and the way that it interconnects is, is crazy. And, and if I don't know how anyone can be an atheist if you've studied the human body. There's no way that the human body could just do this on its own. It works so perfect that there has to be someone that created us, someone that put that together. The human body is amazing. Just a couple of facts. The heart pumps about 2,000 gallons per day. My car, we drove it here yesterday. We drove 300 miles, and it pumped about 12 gallons. Not that much. It pumps, our heart pops, pumps about 200 times that every day. And it runs for 80, 90 years. The body produces enough saliva during your life to fill two swimming pools. I'm a dentist. I kind of think that's pretty cool. Y'all probably, I don't know if you do or not. <laughs> Michael and Danny, y'all can probably tell me how much how many gallons of water are in a pool, but it's a lot, for the human body just to produce enough spit to do that. That's pretty incredible. Your body circulates a blood cell every minute. So my heart, it pumps and it goes down to my legs. It goes out to my arms. It goes up to my head in one minute. It's pretty incredible. Your stomach contains hydrochloric acid, and that hydrochloric acid is what helps dissolve your food and what allows it to be metabolized in your body. But that metal or that, uh, that hydrochloric acid, if you put metal in there, it will dissolve that metal. But somehow we're left unharmed. That's because God created mechanisms in our body to produce bicarbonate that will neutralize that acid. The last one, your heart beats about 100,000 times a day and 2.5 trillion times in your lifetime. That's amazing. If you count it to 100,000 times every day and you did that for 70, 80, 90 years, that's a lot of heartbeats. And God made your body to do that. And this morning, we're going to talk about that. The Bible says in Psalms 139, verse 14, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. Think about it. You don't have to plug your body in every night like you do your phone. Your body is able to recharge itself. 
your body, if you get sick, if you put something in your body that's not supposed to be there and or some type of bacteria gets in there, it's able to rid that bacteria. It's able to get rid of that toxin and you're able to be well once again. Your body works in unison so well together. Your kidneys function with your heart, function with your liver, function with your brain. It all works so well together. Your body's able to fix itself. Like if I were to get a cut on my hand, it would be able to first clot, and then it would be able to regenerate over the next few days, next few weeks. But think about it. When things go really wrong, when you hear somebody that has like kidney failure or liver failure, when things go wrong, the entire body suffers from it. The entire body is relying on itself. And so one, when one thing goes bad, the entire body starts to shut down. And this morning, we're going to see that. We're going to see as one part of Jesus' body starts to fail, it leads to other problems and other problems. Because all these things are so interconnected. This morning, we're going to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, I've been through a whole lot of anatomy courses, and, and I really feel like that it has really helped me understand the pain and the suffering that Jesus Christ went through. And this morning, I hope that I can uh, give you some of that information. I'm going to try not to make it very complicated uh, this morning. So we're going to talk about the final 15 hours of Jesus Christ's life, from midnight all the way up to His death. And this morning, I'm not trying to be gross. I'm not trying to be insensitive But I'm trying to show you the facts. I'm trying to get you to understand how bad it really was. How much pain that he went through. And there are going to be one or two pictures up here that are going to be kind of hard to take. Kind of hard to look at. But I just really, I want you to understand how bad it was. So we're going to start out in the Garden of Gethsemane. A lot of people think, well, when Jesus was crucified, it started with the beating. Well, actually... Before he was whipped, before, before he was scourged, he actually had some problems that were going on in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember back, then, back in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was praying, he was talking to God all night long, and he was saying, if, if there's any other way, any other way that we can do this, let's do it that way. The Bible says in Luke 22, verse 44, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus Christ was in such fragile state. He was in a, an emotional state to the point that he was bleeding out of his sweat glands. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever read that before? He was bleeding out of his sweat. He was, his face was bleeding. This is what's called psychogenic hematidrosis. The body is in such an emotional state that the... Uh, the blood vessels, the capillaries, will start to break down, and it will leak into the blood vessels or into the sweat glands. Go ahead and click on that if it lets you. So here's a visual. If we go down into the skin of this, here's a capillary, or this is a sweat gland, and under these emotional and these traumatic situations, those capillaries will begin to break, and blood will leak into those sweat glands, and that's what causes that appearance. And it's been documented over history just a couple of times that this has happened. And they've seen it uh, in the past hundred years several times. And every time that they've seen this uh, case, this psychogenic hematidrosis, has been when people are on death row. People that know that they are about to be, be, about to be killed and put to death. And they have to think about that. And the body is just not able to handle that. And it goes into uh, 
breaking down. The capillaries start to break down. And what, what I found out after reading about this is that it will cause hypersensitivity throughout the entire body. So any, anything like if I were to just touch my hand before, it wouldn't hurt. But after this, after that blood has leaked into those sweat glands, it causes pain just to a normal, normal touch. So it's going to make this crucifixion a whole lot more painful than it even was then. So after Jesus was taken from the garden, he was taken to the trials by the, hen, by the Sanhedrin. And this is about midnight, keep in mind. We're, we're at midnight right now. And he's taken to Caiaphas. And this is about a one-mile walk that he had to go on. He's already exhausted. He's probably not been eating a whole lot during this time. He just was under, uh, he's been under severe emotional stress and he has to walk a mile. And he's taken to Caiaphas. And this is where we have the trials by the Sanhedrin. And this is the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And here, while he's at this trial, they blindfold him. They blindfold him and they punch him in the face. And they beat him repeatedly. And his face is bruised. And he's beaten. On top of the other things that he's already had to endure. So after this has gone on, they, they take him to Pilate. And Pilate then... He sends him to Herod, and Herod says, well, I, there's nothing that I can do with him. And he sends him back to Pilate, and that's when Pilate pronounces his judgment. He's, that Herod sends him back to Pilate, and this is when Pilate pronounces his judgment on Jesus. This is when he releases Barabbas. You remember that? He releases Barabbas, and he takes Jesus, and he says, well, what will I do with him? And they say, well, let's crucify him. And so he releases Jesus to be crucified. And the first part of that crucifixion is the scourging. I don't know if you've seen the Passion, but there's going to be a couple uh, images that I pull from the Passion. And if you remember back to that, they would tie him up to a post or chain. This, this picture has changed, but they would either chain him or they would tie him up to a post. They'd put both of their arms, they'd take all of their clothes off of them. That way their back was completely exposed. That way they could do as much trauma, as much damage as they could. And these people that would crucify Jesus, they were, or the, that were going to scourge Jesus, they were called legionnaires. And legionnaires, what they were, this was their job. Just like I'm going to be a dentist. Just like you all have your jobs. This was their job. They were to torture. Their job was to whip and to scourge. And they were professionals at this. This is we went to. I went to college. Many of you went to college. This is what they were trained to do for their profession, and they were very good at it. They were extremely good at their job, and many a time there were two on each side of whoever they were crucifying, and one would be beating on this side, and between whips, he would hit one, and the other one would then swing again. That way, the victim didn't have any time to recover, and that way, the person who was whipping had time to rest. And could initiate another blow. This is what's called a flagrum. And Jordan and I made one of these. And this is about what it would look like. You have one long handle. You have something that would tie it to. Or back then I guess they knew how to wrap it around. And then on the end of these. You had these metal weights. Like this right here. This is a ball of lead just from a fishing line. And what these metal weights were for is so that you would have velocity. You would have momentum whenever you were swinging. Think about if you went fishing. If you didn't tie a weight onto the end of your fishing line, 
and you tried to cast, it wouldn't go anywhere. But when you tie this weight, you're able to uh, cast it out a long ways. And then they would take bones from different animals, and they'd tie that onto there. They'd, they'd put the leather around that, and they'd make it really sharp. And between the metal and the, and the leather from calf skin and the bone, as those soldiers were whipping, the lead would bruise and would break all the different veins and arterials and, that were in the body. The bone would dig in to the flesh deeper and deeper every time. Can you imagine that? That'd be terrible. That'd be terrible to watch. I've seen the passion. You've probably, many of you have seen the passion. That's, that's hard to watch them do that. It'd be terrible. Back then, the Jewish tradition was to whip somebody about 39 times. It was believed that if you whipped them any more than 39 times, then they would probably die. And these, these legionnaires, the people that were administering the whipping they would be put to death if they put to death that person because they wanted them to be crucified. They wanted to make them an example back then. And so they didn't want them to die. They just wanted them to endure severe pain. They would shred their back up. I don't know if this next video is going to work. Maybe it will. So that was a clear back before. And lash after lash, it goes into the dermis of your skin. It goes into the hypodermis. It goes into your arteries, your veins. It digs into the muscle. It breaks bone. These things were awful. And after 39 lashes, the back doesn't even look like a back. It's a bloodied mess. It's bruised. It's broken. There's pieces of bone. Can you imagine that? Having to watch somebody go through that? If you want, you can come up and look at this after, after church and uh, I'll show it to you. So then at the end of that, after he'd been beaten and whipped 39 times to the point where he was about to die, they untie him. They take him off that pole and he flops to the ground, unable to move. Unable to think, unable to do anything because of the pain that he was in. The Bible says in Matthew 27, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium, and they gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. So they put this scarlet robe on him. And think about it. What happens to blood as it dries? It's hardened, and it can be like glue almost. That fiber and clot, that's what it's good for. It stops you from bleeding. But they put that robe on him, and that blood seeps into that robe, and it dries. And here in a minute, they're going to rip that off of him. And it's going to cause bleeding all over again. Terrible pain. A lot of blood loss. So it says that they went and they uh, put a crown of thorns on his head. And then it says they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him and put his clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. We're not even at the crucifixion yet. And Jesus has been through torture after torture after torture. This is 
what a crown of thorns would look like. And this, is, this one's kind of old now and kind of brittle. But back then, they would take what was firewood to them. They would use this firewood at night. And they would wrap it. And they wrapped it in this. And uh, then they placed it on Jesus' head. I remember when I was young, my mom made several crowns of thorns. And she would give them to, as gifts. And she had these big leather gloves that she put on. And I was like five years old at the time. And every day after she would work on these, even though she had leather gloves on, she would come in and she'd be bleeding. That's how sharp these thorns are. Can you imagine someone putting that on your head? This is a picture of the human head vasculature. And you have the uh, carotid artery, the red artery from down the bottom. And that's what feeds the entire head. It feeds your brain. It feeds your scalp. And that's the most important thing to your body. If your head has no um, blood to it, then the entire body will shut down. And the body knows that. So when there's blood loss, when, there's, uh, when blood has gone out of the body, the, bo- the body will shunt all the blood in the body. It will take it from the hands and from the feet, and it will put it up to the head. And so the head is one of the most vascular reasons for that, for that very reason, that it needs blood. And so they would put this crown of thorns on him, and it would go and it pierced these different arteries and these different veins, and blood would start to seep out. Then they'd get a reed, and a reed was something that they would find in a river bottom there. This is where they'd hit him on the head. Over and over. And they'd hit him, and that's, that crown of thorns would dig deeper and deeper. What kind of people would do that to somebody? Can you imagine just watching this as he's bleeding from his head? He's innocent. He didn't do anything. He didn't do anything to deserve this. It was our sins that put him on that cross. Our sins that caused him to be whipped. Our sins that caused a crown of thorns to be placed on his head. So they mocked him. They made fun of him. They had this scarlet robe on him. A crown of thorns had already been beaten into his head. Splinters in his head. All kinds of nerves running through your head. So painful. And then they would rip his clothes off of him. That blood had already dried. They'd rip it off of him, causing him to bleed more and more again. And this is when they led him outside. And he's continuing to lose blood this entire time. So let's think about this. Let's summarize what Jesus has gone through already. He sweated blood. He was under such severe stress that he sweated blood. He walked two and a half miles by this point. He's been scourged. He's been whipped. He's been beaten 39 times to the point of death. He had a crown of thorns put on his head and driven into his skull. And then lastly, he had that robe ripped off. We haven't even gotten to the crucifixion yet, and he's been through all this. So when you put all these things together, you get severe blood loss. All of these different things have caused him to lose blood to this point. He's dehydrated. He hasn't had anything to drink. He's walked two and a half miles. And your blood is made up of like 50% water. And so with all that blood loss, he's losing water as well. So he is severely dehydrated and he's lost a lot of blood. 
And you get, when you put those together, you get hypovolemic shock. And you've heard of hypovolemic shock, like when you've watched TV shows or uh, CSI or something like that, and someone's been impaled or they've been shot and there's, they've lost a lot of blood. And they call that hypovolemic shock because they've lost so much blood at that point. That's the physical state of Jesus up to this point. Keep that in mind while we continue on. And also remember that we talked earlier about how all these organs work together so well. But at this point, he's starting to lose blood. And what that blood does is it, it, uh, it feeds all the different parts of your body. And so as you lose blood, you're not able to feed like your, uh, your different organs, like your liver. And so those start to shut down, causing problems elsewhere in the body. So at this point, we're going to... Uh, this is when they take Jesus from uh, where he was just mocked in the praetorium, and they take him to Golgotha. And what they do is they place this piece of wood on his back. This is what they call the patibulum. And this patibulum is about five feet long, and it weighs about 110 pounds. And this is what they would tie down to his back. And think about that. He had just been whipped 39 times. His back was raw flesh. And they put that on his back, and he had to endure the pain of that being on his back. Same thing with the crown of thorns. As it hit him in the back of the head, it drove it farther and farther into his skull. They would, they, Jesus would be forced to carry this 600, yard, 600 yards. It's about six football fields. He had to carry it the entire way, and he was too weak to do it, so they allowed someone to help him to carry it the rest of that way. And in front of Jesus, they would hold what was a titulus, and it was a sign, and they would hold it like this as they paraded him through the streets. And on that sign, it said, Jesus, King of the Jews. And we're going to talk about that just a little bit more in a minute. So when they got to Golgotha, they untied that board from him, that that, uh, patibulum, and they threw it down onto the ground, and then they threw Jesus on top of it. The Bible says in Matthew 27, verses 33 and 34, when they were, had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Do you know what gall, gall is? I didn't either until I had uh, researched this and, and looked it up. But it was snake venom. And they had, they'd mixed this snake venom with the wine. That, that was there. And what it did is it was a painkiller. It's basically what they wanted to do was allow that person to stay conscious. They wanted them to be able to endure the entire process of the crucifixion. So they'd give them this mixture that, in hopes that it would do that. And I read in several places that it was about the strength of an aspirin. So something that we would take for a headache, it's going to numb the pain about that much. Not much. But Jesus, whenever he tasted it, he refused to drink because he wanted to feel the entire thing. He wanted to be fully conscious and fully aware of what was going on while he was being crucified. This next part is going to be a little bit different than what you might have been told. But there's many different uh, crosses that have been used throughout uh, history for the crucifixion. Um. Here's the first one. This was about 800 years before Jesus Christ was crucified. 
they used what was basically a tree. They would find a tree. This was used by the Persians uh, with people that they had captured and they, they wanted to torture. They put them up on this tree that had two branches, and that was it. That was their crucifixion. Later on, it progressed to a post where basically like a telephone pole, they'd stretch their arms above their head and they would nail their feet to the bottom of it. Then this is what we traditionally think of as the cross that Jesus was crucified on. But after archaeologic excavations and uh, gone back through history and they've looked at it, they've decided that this wasn't the cross that Jesus was probably crucified on. And it was actually this T or Tau cross, just one pole that went across and one long bar. But in regards to this, the reason that they that we think of this as the cross that they use now is that artists had come over time and they had painted these different crosses to depict the crucifixion of Jesus. And they didn't have the evidence that we have now, the uh, archaeological excavations, and that's what they painted. This is what they were thought to be historically accurate. This is just what they had been told over time. So I thought that was kind of interesting. So this right here is the cross that Jesus was uh, crucified on. And it had the sign above it, the titulus that we talked about earlier. And then a little bit later on, they would use what was the low cross, where the person would just be a couple inches off the ground, like two or three inches, and you'd be eye level with them. And then even further down the line in history, they used what was called the X cross. So now we get to that part where Jesus was going to be crucified, and they began to put the nails in his body. There's, right there, I don't know if you can see that, there's two things that I've circled. The one on the left is the ulnar nerve, and the one on your right is your median nerve. The two nerves that supply the, the, your digits on your hand. The median nerve would supply these three, and the ulnar nerve would supply these two. And what they would do is they would put that nail right there in your wrist. A lot of times we think about it being in the hands. Thomas said, let me see, let me see your hands, Jesus. But it was actually in their wrist. Back then, when they said hands, it referred to the entire part from your wrist up to your fingers. And so they would put that in their wrist because your hands didn't have enough support. And it would just rip out. So they needed that support. So they put it in between your ulnar and your radial bones in your arm. That way your body would be able to support itself up on that cross. And they placed it in between the two bones there and the wrist bones. And that nail would drive right through that median nerve. I don't know if you've ever had nerve pain before, but that would that's, that's terrible. I tried to think about a way to describe that type of pain, but I couldn't even think of anything. There's nothing that I've been through that could amount to that. Think about the worst pain that you've been in and multiply it. Because that nerve was transected right there. And any time that he moved, any time that he made any type of movement, we'll talk more about while his breathing in a little bit, any time he tried to do that, severe pain just jolted throughout his body. And he wasn't able to use his fingers anymore because of this. Those spikes back then were about seven inches long. They might have been a little bit thinner than this. Rusty, most likely. That would cause infection, tetany. And they would place it right in between here. That way it wouldn't 
damage any bones. It'd go right through, but it would pierce that median nerve. And they'd get this ner- this nail, and they'd lay him down on that patibulum, and one by one, they'd nail it into him. They'd put him on that cross. Then they'd stretch his other hand out. They'd do the same. That entire time that he's laying there, watching these nails drive into him, guess what he's thinking about? He's thinking about you. The sins that you committed, the things that you've done in this life, he was thinking about you. And then after that, they would... Oh, actually, here's the artery supply to the the blood supply to the hand. As you can see, right there's about where they would place that nail, and they would that artery, the red right there, it's a ways away from where that nail would be placed. And so, there was no major blood supply that they would hit that would cause him to bleed out. And they they did that for a reason. They wanted him to be alive for the rest of the crucifixion, and they'd place that nail about right there. There's a picture of him hanging up on the cross. They would allow flexion. They, they, they wouldn't have him perfectly straight out like this. They'd have him bent about like this so that he'd be able to flex and he'd be able to pull himself up on that cross so that he could breathe. I'll talk about that. So here's a picture of Christ, or a, a depiction of Christ hanging up on uh, this cross that we talked about. And the way they, they would do this, he had just that one long board that they had nailed him to. That, uh, the long board on the back... That's in the ground. That's permanent. They would leave that there, and they would use that to crucify the next person. But they would use this ramp, and they would walk Christ up on it, and they would walk it up on their shoulders, and they'd set it down on this cross like this. This is what's called a mortis and tenon joint. And it would insert into that hole like that, and that would make sure that that cross wouldn't fall over up there, that it was going to be fastened and strong and sturdy. So next, after they had, they had nailed his hands, they moved to his feet. And they placed the nail to his feet right there between his second and third metatarsals. Again, there's no major artery that's there that's going to cause him to bleed out. Uh, there's two nerves there, the perennial nerve and the lateral plantar nerve. And again, just like in his hand, it's going to send severe jolts up through his body. He's not going to be able to move his toes anymore after this. But he's going through severe pain this entire time. They placed it right about there. Here's the picture of the blood supply. Again, no major major arteries that are going to cause any uh, long bleeding. This next picture is going to be one of the more graphic, but this is very real. Very real to what it would look like. This is what it would look like right after they had finished nailing him to the cross. They would allow a little bit of flexion in his knees. They would bend his knees about like that, and they'd nail him to the side. That way he could bend his knees when he needed to breathe. Here's the titulus that they would hang up above that cross, and it would be in two different languages. Uh, one in Greek, or maybe three, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And on it, it said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. They, they would state what the name of the person was and then the crime 
or in this case, there was no crime that they had committed. And they would hang this above the victim's head so that anybody that was there, anybody that was watching, could know who this person was and they could mock them. They could ridicule them. Okay, so think about when you breathe. When you inhale, you're having to use muscles in your body. You're using your anterior, your scalenes in your neck, sternocleidoid in your neck. You've heard of your intercostals, your rib muscles. You breathe in, and those all flex, and it allows your rib cage to open up to where your lungs can then fill with air. That's what we call active respiration. That's what, that's what a normal person would do. They'd breathe in, and then exhale would be normal. You just relax. You don't have to tense any muscles. You just relax those muscles, and you will exhale. When you have someone that is being crucified, think about it. Their arms are up above their head. Their lungs are already opened up. Those muscles are already in their active position so where you don't have to actively breathe in. He would just open his mouth or his uh, windpipe and all that air would just go in. He didn't have to inhale. He didn't have to push his diaphragm down. It was just automatic. But where we have to just passively exhale, we just relax all of our muscles. What he had to do was he would have to relax his rib cage. And so he would have to flex his biceps. Think about that. The pain of that nail twisting in his, in his wrist. It would rotate and it would just uh, puncture that nerve even more. He would have to use his abdominal muscles to pull himself up. He'd have to rotate his feet and stand up on that cross. Can you imagine that? Going through that? And he would do this one time. That entire process, just to get one breath. Just to breathe one time. And then ten seconds later, he'd do it again. And I don't know how much you know about the respiratory system, but when you breathe in, you breathe in oxygen. And that oxygen is what goes through your body to allow it to, nutri- uh, to give nutrients to the rest of your body. And whenever that organ is done using that, it gives off carbon dioxide. You've heard of carbon dioxide. And when we exhale, that carbon dioxide goes out. It's not oxygen anymore. It's carbon dioxide. But if you're not able to exhale, like as someone that's on the cross, someone that can't exhale normally, that carbon dioxide begins to build up in the body. And it becomes very acidic. Respiratory acidosis. I don't know if you've heard about that. But your body builds up this acid and it causes other organs to shut down. Your kidney's not unable to function anymore. Your heart is having trouble pumping now. Your lungs aren't able to get the nutrients they need. And this is what they call the cycle, the vicious cycle of carbon dioxide. Because the more you get in, the more it causes organ failure, allowing you to get less out, less CO2 out, which then it just is a cycle where you just constantly are retaining that CO2 causing problems throughout the body. I want you to think about this. Jesus Christ spoke seven times while he was on the cross. Whenever we're talking, we have to breathe in to speak. We don't normally think about that, but think about Jesus while he's on this cross. He's having to breathe in, which is easy for him, but he has to exhale every time before he can get a new breath. So, 
He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Think about the pain that he went through to say that. He had to tense his biceps. He had to stand up on that nail to forgive somebody. To forgive somebody. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. He was telling that to the thief. He said, woman, behold your son. And then to his brother John, he said, behold your mother. And he was saying basically, take care of her. It's your job now to take care of her. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said, I thirst. He'd been 15 hours without anything, anything to drink. He was dehydrated. He had lost all that blood. He just wanted some, something to drink. He said, it is finished. And then finally, think about this. His body had been through so much. He had built up so much carbon dioxide in his blood. He had lost so much blood in his body that he had, and at this point, he had very labored breathing. He couldn't really breathe because he couldn't move his arms. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That was the last thing that Jesus said. And then he died. All that pain, all that suffering that he had been through was now over. The Bible says in Psalms 22, verses 14 and 15, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. This is what Jesus went through. He had been up on that cross. His his bones had popped out of socket. He was so dehydrated that his tongue was sticking to his lips, to his jaw. And think about this. He had been through pain. He had been up on that cross for six hours too. When you go outside and you stay outside for six hours and the sun is beating down to you, you get sunburned. You get blistered. He went through that. He went through starvation. He went through dehydration. He went through exhaustion. And he went through infection. These 15 hours that he had been through on that cross left him completely drained. He couldn't move the rest of his body. His body, at the point of his death, was basically just pumping oil, sludge, because there was no water in it. And his heart was having a hard time pumping. And it was, uh, every time it pumped, it would uh, be wearing out a little bit more because there wasn't enough oxygen to feed it. And at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, six hours after he had been placed on this cross, he cries out, he lowers his head, and he dies. All that pain was now over. At this point in the crucifixion, what they would normally do is they would go through to each of the people that they were crucifying after it was late in the day, and they would break their legs. This is what they called the crucifracture. And the reason they would do this is they would break their legs. If you remember back to whenever he would have to expire out, he would push up with his legs, and that would cause him to breathe out. If you break their legs, they're not able to expire anymore. And that carbon dioxide would build up so much to the point where that person would then pass away. 
But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead, and they didn't have to do that to him. The Bible says in John 19, verse 34, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. I think it's really interesting that there's a distinction here. Blood and water. Normally, whenever you puncture somebody, you just see blood. You don't see water come out with it as well. This right here is a picture of the heart. Right in the middle between the two lungs. And then surrounding the heart, that white layer is what they call the pericardium. And that pericardium is there to protect the heart. It encapsulates the heart so that it isn't harmed by uh, things moving throughout the body. But that pericardium is impenetrable to water. Water can't go out of it. And so what happens in these extremely fragile states where you don't have very much oxygen and very much blood in your body, that water begins to leak out of your blood vessels. And it moves from the heart into this outer layer called the pericardium. And the heart, because this stress, the pericardium was building up so much water, it would cause the heart to be compressed and the heart wouldn't be able to pump like it should. So after his death, when that soldier came up and they pierced his uh, side and up into his heart, that spear punctured that pericardium and water came out. Then as that soldier went even further and punctured the heart, that's when the blood came out. I want to talk about blood for a minute. Or actually, we'll do that in just a minute. The death of Jesus. Jesus had just passed away. And if you're looking for one different, one specific thing, which I thought I was when I, whenever I was putting this lesson together, if you're looking for one specific thing that killed Jesus, it wasn't. There wasn't one specific, one specific thing. There were three, at least three, main contributory factors. The first one is heart failure. We just talked about these pericardial effusions and how they would compress to the point on the heart where the heart wouldn't be able to pump. He also went through what was called asphyxia, and asphyxia is lack of oxygen. Because of that buildup of CO2 in his body, of carbon dioxide in his body, it would lead to organ failure. And then lastly, we already talked about this hypovolemic shock. He had been through so much blood loss to this point that his body was beginning to shut down because he didn't have enough blood to feed his body. Let's think about blood for a second. The human body has about... 5.6 liters of blood in it. There's about 5.6 liters of blood in the human body. Each one of these bottles is about a liter liter, uh, to represent a liter of blood. What did that crucifixion, what did that blood mean to us as Christians? Well, we read several times throughout, that, throughout the body that without blood, we wouldn't be able to have forgiveness of sins. It was Jesus Christ's willingness to go on that cross, to be beaten and whipped, to go on that cross, to have His hands nailed and His blood shed for us. Without that, we wouldn't be able to be free from our sins. So I want you to think about whenever he is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's under severe emotional stress. 
And his sweat is blood. He's bleeding out sweat. Or he's, he's sweating out blood because of the pain that he knows that he's about to endure. The entire time that he does that, he's thinking about you. He's thinking about the sins that you've committed, the things that you've done to put him on that cross. He's thinking about you. And he's doing that for you. Think about when they take his clothes off of him and they put him on that board. They start to whip him. They tie him up to that board and they whip him so bad that he is about to die. He has lost so much blood. And then they lay him out on the ground and he's there, mauled. His back doesn't even look like flesh anymore. Think about whenever they place that crown of thorns on his head. They place that crown of thorns on his head and they beat it. They hit his head so many times and that thorn, those thorns drive deeper and deeper and deeper into his skull. That entire time, he's thinking about you. He's doing that for you. Think about when they put that robe on him and that blood dries then they rip it off, rip it off of him, re-exposing all that blood, causing him to bleed all over again. His black, his back is still a mess, bleeding. The entire time that he's doing that, he's thinking about you. He did that for you. They take him to the cross and they nail his hands in. When he's looking over at them, hammer those nails. He's not really thinking about the pain that much. He's thinking about you. He's thinking that He's doing this for you. And He knows that without doing that, he wouldn't, that we wouldn't be able to have forgiveness of our sins. And he's thinking about us that entire time. And then lastly, after Jesus has already died, and they puncture His heart, and the last of the blood in His body flows out. He did all of this for you. He went through all of the beatings, all of the cursing, all of the... Uh, make, they made fun of Him. He went through all of that. The mocking, the pain, He went through all of that for you and for me. And praise God that He did. Because we wouldn't be where we are now. We wouldn't be able to have the forgiveness of sins that we do. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. Through this crucifixion, through this punishment and torture, we are healed. We are able to be healed. Christ went through all of this for us. He was tortured. He was nailed to the cross. For six hours, he sat up there, was poked fun at. The entire time, he was thinking of you. And this blood loss that he went through is what allows us to have forgiveness of our sins. I hope that we've talked about some things this morning that are able to stir up your thoughts and that are able to help you empathize maybe a little bit about what Christ went through for you. We're going to offer an invitation of baptism this morning. That if you have not obeyed that... If you want to accept this sacrifice that Jesus went through for us, for your forgiveness of sins, for everything you do in your life that is sinful and wrong, 
You can do that this morning. You can believe, you can repent, confess, and then be baptized. You can show the death of Christ that we talked about this morning through your baptism, and you can have forgiveness of sins. This morning, if we can help you with that, please come while we stand and sing.